started this series a few weeks ago called Family Christmas. And uh, we've been talking about how Jesus is presented to us through a family. And, and we've looked at his family historically. We've talked about his family and, uh, with Mary and Joseph. And we talked about how Jesus still has a family today. It's called the church. Now, the greatest opportunity in the world is to be part of Jesus' family. So we've talked about what it's like to be part of Jesus' family or how we become part of Jesus' family. Last week we talked about uh, Jesus has been uh, born so that we can be born again. And today we'll talk a little about what it means to be part of Jesus' family. So today we kind of gather as Jesus' family around this Christmas season uh, to celebrate the new birth of Christ, to celebrate uh, our new birth in Christ. But uh, I thought maybe it'd be fun to start, we'll do like a little Christmas quiz, okay, to see kind of how much you know about Christmas. We'll just ask two or three questions. How many of you know how many wise men there were? How many wise men were there? Anybody know? No, they're not three. <laughs> no, no, sorry. I'm sadistical and evil and I tricked you. This is a trap. I should have said that up front. No, there are three gifts. The truth is we have no idea how many wise men there really were. We just know they brought three presents. It could have been like four, you know, three brought a present and one was cheap. He just tagged along. He didn't bring nothing. We don't really know how many, how many wise men there were. There could have been 27 and they pulled together and got, I don't know. We don't know. I suppose there's probably more than one. Now, you probably don't want to take any more of the quiz, do you? Right? You know. Anybody know where Jesus was born? What city Jesus was born in? But yeah, you're like, what's the Christmas song say? You're going through Christmas songs in your head, aren't you? Bethlehem. All right, all right, I'll give you that. That's a no-brainer. Did the wise men visit the manger? No. I, that's absolutely right. I didn't think you'd get that one. I thought that was the one we trapped you on. So you know what that means. That means all our nativity scenes are wrong. Go over to your fireplace mantle and look, where are the wise men? They're right there at the manger. Why are they there? They don't belong there. They weren't there before. So now you've got to go home and rearrange your Christmas furniture, right? You've got the manger scene. The nativity's all wrong. So what you need to do is go home this afternoon, take the wise men, put them in the kitchen because they're still on their way, right? They haven't, got to the nativity, they haven't got to the manger yet. Just go put them in some other part of the room because they're traveling. They're still far off. It's not theologically correct. Now, you would think for these guys to be so famous that they're probably all over the Bible. In reality, we really only have one account of these three or four or ten magi, wise men. In Matthew chapter 2, we read about it. Look at Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, yes, in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi from the east, that's the wise men, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, now pay attention to how, pay attention to how everyone reacts to this news. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem was disturbed by this news that this star had led these people from far away to come find the Messiah. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet's written. Now, in verse 6, 
Matthew quotes uh, Micah chapter 2. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Talking about Messiah. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Not the baby, the child. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, I, if you want to have something to write with or maybe use your smartphone or the bulletin or whatever, I'm going to give you uh, two, two sets of three. I want to give you um, three responses that we see that different people had to the news about Jesus coming. And you'll see... Those three basic human responses exist today. And then I want to talk about the three gifts that how many ever wise men they were brought. Here are, the, here are the three responses. Number one, there's a lot of interest in, in this news about Jesus being born. The first one I want to talk about is self-interest. Number one, self-interest. We see this response in Herod. All Herod wants to know is, Who's the one who claims to be king, and I need to know where he's at, and ultimately he's lying when he says, because I want to worship him too. Herod didn't want to worship Jesus. It's kind of one of these ideas that there's not room in this town for two kings, and I'm not going to ever let it come to that. And before this king can grow up and gain authority and be whoever he's supposed to be, I'm going to make sure it never happens. So Herod ordered that hundreds of, of male babies were slaughtered because he didn't want there to be any other king other than himself. So his interest in Jesus was self-interest. Sometimes people still have that reaction to Jesus. Just like Herod wanted to be king, sometimes we want to be king of our own life. So I kind of brought a crown this morning to represent that idea. Herod wanted to be the king of his own life and there wasn't room in his mind for any other king to exist but him. And I think today, particularly in a Christianized culture, or a place where Christianity is so familiar and common, we're tempted in the same way that Herod was to use Jesus for our own purposes. And so think about your interest. Think about my interest in Jesus this morning. What is our, what is our real interest in him? In other words, if Jesus gives me a a new job, I'm interested in him. Or if Jesus allows me to have children, or if he makes my life better, or if Jesus helps me grow my business, if Jesus heals me, if Jesus helps me find a spouse, if Jesus helps me fulfill the vision that I have for my life, I'm interested. But if he doesn't help me with any of those things, I'm not really interested because my interest in Jesus, think about it at Christmas, my interest in Jesus is self-interest. So the question I have for you this morning, and 
We'll come back to this in a minute. Who's the king of your life? I mean, this baby being born has huge implications. Who's the king of your life? We'll look at it a little bit closer when we look at the gifts of the wise men. Here's the second interest that we see. Disinterest. This is a very curious fact to me in the story that the wise men come from some country or countries way away. They travel, they take all this expense to get there, they arrive in the city, they're looking for the king, they're looking for Jesus, and maybe they go to the palace because that's where kings should be, and the king's not in the palace. Maybe, maybe they go to the uh, temple where you might expect a Jewish king to be, and the king's not there either. And they continue to look, and so the scholars are called in, and the chief priest and the scribes, and they're asked if this Messiah is born, where he's supposed to be born. We've been waiting for him. The Jewish people have been waiting for him for hundreds and thousands of years now. They've been talking about him. They've been reading the prophecies about him. Father would tell son and son would tell grandson that there's coming a Messiah to our people one day. We've been waiting all this time for this Messiah. So where would he be born? When he, when he uh, searches the official record and he asks the priests and scribes, they point right to Micah chapter 2 and they say, well, the prophet tells us he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Now, now think about this for a minute. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Herod is stirred up by the news. That, and the Bible says that the whole city of Jerusalem is stirred up by the news that Jesus has been born. But not one person other than the wise men traveled to Bethlehem, including the scholars, the priest, and the scribe, to see if it's true or not. Not one person. Do you know how far Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? Six miles. Not even a full day's walk in that time period. And nobody even takes it upon themselves to figure out, is this true or not? You, you ever, you ever going to go out and run an errand or go to the store or something? You ask one of your family members. You, want somebody, you don't want to go by yourself. Hey, i got to go to Walmart. You know, go, and they're flipping TV channels. You say, hey, you want to go? Nah. What are, you, what are you watching? I don't know. Something good might happen. Don't really want to put my shoes on. Is that, that level of disinterest frustrates you. Oh, come on, man. Go with me. Nah. You believe these guys are six miles away from Jesus? And not a scribe, not a Pharisee, not a priest, not King Herod, not anybody takes it upon themselves to go down and even figure out what that must mean? That's, that's astounding to me. We, we call that disinterest, but in our times we have another word for it. It's called busy. Sometimes our lives and our days and our our minds are consumed by other things, by our jobs, by our relationships, our well-being, our security, our appearance, our hobbies, our personal dreams, and we just don't have time, you know, for Jesus. And God's Word, Jesus told us in a parable, is choked out by the cares of this world. And so, I've kind of put this candle here because when you're searching for something in the dark, you light a light to see if you can't find it. And there was nobody in the city of Jerusalem interested enough to even go on a search of any kind to see 
if it was true or not. And I think sometimes in our lives it's that way. We know the facts. We know the story. We understand the Bible. We can quote a few verses. But the question is not what is your knowledge base. The question is what are you pursuing? What are you what are you searching for? What are you looking for in your life? What do you spend time pursuing in your life? Here's the third interest. Genuine interest. The three wise men were genu- genuinely interested. They traveled a long way, it, at great expense, at inconvenience. They've left their own culture. They've left their own country. Probably have left, they've definitely left their home, maybe even left family behind. They roll into town and they ask, where is Jesus? He's not in Jerusalem. Then where is he? How do we find him? They're determined no matter what, they're going to keep going until they find him. Until they find him. And that brings up the thought of a sacrifice. They sacrificed to find him. So I brought this little container that represents a liquid we'll talk about in a minute. Paul said... I've been poured out as a drink offering for Christ. In other words, I've emptied myself. I've given something from inside me. I've sacrificed something. It's cost me something to follow this Jesus and pursue him. And so the question I have is, what have you sacrificed for Jesus? Let's take a closer look at those three things again. But this time we'll look through the lens of the gifts that the Magi brought. Imagine for a moment what's happened. These guys have traveled a great distance. They've gone city to city. They finally found Jesus. And what do they do when they find him? They bow down and worship him. Now that fascinates me. They bow down to a child. They bow down to a little, small child. They bow down and they worship him. And see, here's what I I think about when I read this story. You and I are in a privileged position in history. We know a lot more about Jesus than these wise men did. Jesus is still a child. He's a baby. He's a little kid. We, We already know what he did. We know what he said. We know how he died. We know what the death was like. We know that he rose again. We know that he's true and we know that he's coming again. They didn't know almost any of those things. But yet they worshipped him. And then what do they do? Matthew chapter 2 says, and then they opened their treasures. They opened their treasures. These are lavish and generous and extravagant gifts. And you remember what they are, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But do you know what those three gifts represent? Do you know what those three gifts mean? Let's talk about the three gifts for a minute. Here's the first one. The first gift was gold. This shows that Jesus is the king. This shows that we have come to worship the authority, the king. Why? Why would gold show that? Because gold is for kings, and it still is. We bring our best to the best, and it shows that Jesus is king. Later in life, Jesus said it like this. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Watching what the wise men did with their gold. Watching that they brought their gold and they laid it at the foot of Jesus and worshipped to him. Where would you guess their heart was? The question's the same. In other words, who's the king of your life? The king gets the gold. Not the leftovers. Not the worst part. The first. Now, I, I, want, I want to drill down into that thought for a few minutes. And uh, I, I want to I lay out some disclaimers, okay? I want to I share a few thoughts with you this morning about generosity and giving and the fact that the wise men brought the gold to the king and what that means to our spiritual life. Now, I realize that listening to a pastor talk about money can be like being stuck in an elevator with a life insurance salesman. So I want to be sensitive to that fact. And look, we didn't get there by accident. There have been enough scandals and, enough, and all of this. I get all of that. So let me give you some disclaimers this morning before we jump in too deep. Here's the first one. If you're a guest today, Maybe you're visiting with family and you're from out of town or something else. Maybe you have a home church that you go to and it's not this one. Maybe in God's own sovereignty, he brought you here to challenge your heart that you might give to your local church. Maybe, maybe you're here as a guest and you don't have a church. And maybe, maybe the transparency by which we'll share about this subject, maybe, maybe God's drawing you to be part of this church. So if you're a guest, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose in these things in your life. Here's the second disclaimer. I want to share some thoughts with you about generosity this morning. And I want you to know that these thoughts don't come out of frustration. In other words, uh, uh, we haven't sort of shut ourselves in a back room somewhere and said, we've tried everything we can to get people to give and they just won't. So we're just going to have to tell them. That's not why I'm sharing this with you this morning. Disclaimer number three. There's a lot of them, by the way. This isn't an effort to dig Kingwood Church out of some hole. Actually, in 2013, our income went up. It doesn't mean that we're, we won the lottery or we're debt-free or we got bills and we keep paying them and all of that. It you know, doesn't mean we're moving to Tahiti and buying an island and planting a church there. doesn't mean any of that. But, but our income went up this year. And so this isn't a, a, a bailout deal. We're not taking another offering today. Disclaimer number four. <laughs> Whatever you gave, you already gave. And we're not going to receive any more. Disclaimer number five. We're, we're, I'm not sharing these things with you so that I can try to make anyone in the room feel guilty about their own level of generosity. Guilt is not a sustainable motivation to do good. But a changed heart is. And I can't change your heart. I can make you feel guilty. I can try. But I can't change your heart. I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty. That's not the purpose of my thoughts here. Here's the thing. I'm a pastor. And my job is to watch over people's soul. My job is to teach and to encourage and to challenge and to lead 
and ultimately to help people grow in their relationship with God. One of the indicators of that relationship with Christ, the health of that relationship, is generosity. That's what Jesus taught. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Whoever's the king gets the gold. In other words, can our finances tell us anything about our spiritual life? Jesus thought so. So this isn't about money, this is about heart. Now as I begin to kind of look around through different eyes in our cultures, my heart began to be stirred on this subject. I realized that our nation is in deep spiritual trouble. And maybe our finances didn't cause that spiritual trouble, but our finances definitely prove it. We've come through a time in American life of unprecedented wealth. And it looks like we're starting to come down the backside of that mountain now. Now, I just read a report that was done this year by one of the largest companies that do this kind of study. And let me tell you what the word is when they look deeper into the local church and find out. Do you know how churches are responding to this economic shift? Churches all over the country are spending more money trying to figure out how to keep the people who already go to their church. And their budgets are being cut in missions, in mission work, in missionary support, uh, and in benevolence. Those budgets are shrinking, and the percentage of the church's income are being put directly into how do we keep the people we already got. Now, I will share transparently with you, but one of the things I'm enormously grateful for in our church is while that might be true in most churches, it is not true here. We added eight missionaries this year. And I'm grateful for that. And that's because, it's not because of me, it's because of you. I can make the decision, but if you don't give, it's like not there. <laughs> right? I can give, but I can only give so much. And so as a church family, as Jesus' family, we've made that decision together. I'm very grateful for that. A large, a big portion of our income our church does much better than tithe. We give away high percentages of our income that go outside this family every year. Now, having said that, churches all over the country, how have we responded to this time of huge economic wealth in our country, in our culture, in our churches? I've mentioned there's a shift coming. But in the heyday of this, churches have spent elaborate amounts of money on on in-house, inside stuff. One of the staff and I were talking a couple weeks ago, and I didn't believe this story. I looked it up because I didn't believe it. Said to me, there's a church in America who's, who bought a $7 million fish aquarium for their foyer. I said, that can't be true. That can't be true. You're telling me that people all over the world are starving to death? There are villages that don't have clean water? or sanitation, or clothes, or food, or never heard the name Jesus one time, and somebody spent $7 million on a fish aquarium for their foyer? It, 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 a disbelief hit me, and then anger followed. I thought, there's no way. There's no way that's true. I looked it up. It's true. I found it. Do you know in America today, the average Christian gives 2.5% of their income? Now, maybe you say, yeah, but that's because the economy's changed. No, no, that number's been shrinking for three decades. That percentage has been on the decline for three decades. And by the way, do you know what the percentage was during the Great Depression? The average Christian gave 
of their income during the Great Depression. Do you think it's possible that America is struggling so much because we lost the purpose of our blessing? In other words, God has given us excess to bless others and America's wealth is dying because we've lost our God-given purpose for it. The God-given purpose of excess is others and to fuel the mission of Christ on earth. Churches haven't always sown good seed in this regard either. Maybe you've heard of something called the prosperity gospel. I'm highly suspicious of a theology that is invented in the middle of unprecedented prosperity. The prosperity gospel basically says, if you give, God will make you rich. I I, I just want to say this to you. I apologize if anybody who claims credentials in ministry has ever taught you that anywhere or if you've ever believed it. God, God will not make you rich. God's never promised when we give that he'll make us rich. He has promised that he'll meet our needs. He's promised provision. He's promised that he's Jehovah Jireh. He'll meet our needs. He'll supply. He's promised all those things. But just hear me for a minute. If giving is a a mechanical system of investment that makes the giver rich, then it's just another way for greedy people to use Jesus for their own plans. Nothing about that answers the question, who's the king? Because in that scenario, the more I give, the more I get, the more I'm the king. And I get the gold. And that is is not at all what we find in the gospel to be true. Don't promise me material gain for giving. I want something better than that. I want something eternal. When we give to God, God gives grace. When we, when we give to God, we receive freedom from materialism. Not a greater attachment to it. So I, I, I talked to our financial folks, and I thought, all of this made me wonder, how are we doing? How's Kingwood Church doing with this? So I talked to our financial folks, and I said, hey, I, I want to know, I, wanna, I want you to do some research and find out two things for me. Number one, I want to know the percentage of our church that tithes. In other words, if you take the average income in this county, in this city, in this community, you take the average income, back that down to 10%, how many many families in our church give the minimum the the Bible suggests requires that we give? What's that number? The other number I ask for is what percentage of our church gives the majority of the church's income. Not who, we don't know, you can't, there's no, no way anybody knows what anybody makes, no, no, none of that. We just try to go with simple math and averages. So I, I asked our financial folks to do that research, here's what they came back with. 15% of the families in our church tithe. 15%. In other words, 15% of the people who say, this is Jesus' family to me, give the minimum that the Bible teaches us as believers that we give to Christ's family. 15%. So 85% said another way, do not give the minimum. 85. 20% of our church give 75% of our income. Now, by the way, that's completely normal and average and usual in churches all over America. We're actually on the higher side 
of the percentage window in our country. But I don't, I don't think that that should make us feel better. I don't want to be average. We're not average in adding new missionaries. We're not average in reaching out. We're not average in the percentage of the church's income that goes outside our doors. We're not average in that. I don't want to be average. But what does that say about our heart? What does it say about our spiritual life? What does it say about our spiritual family? What does it say about our future? Do you know if every Christian in America tithed, if every Christian in America gave 10% of their income, do you have any idea what could be done? In five years, global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable disease would be eliminated. In five years. In five years, illiteracy would be gone. In five years, the entire world's water and sanitation issues would be eliminated if every American Christian gave 10% of their income to the church. All the missions work in the world from every denomination and missions agency on planet Earth would be funded fully. And we would have $100 billion left over we'd have to figure out what to do with. The problem is we're swimming in a culture of deceit that says the more we get, the happier we are. And I'm just saying to you, it feels to me like God's judgment is hovering over America. You know what judgment is, don't you? It's when God turns you over to yourself. That's what judgment is. When I thought about that this week, I said, oh, God. Please don't turn me over to myself. I've seen enough of myself to know. I don't want that. God, don't turn Kingwood Church over to itself. Don't remove your hand. The truth is, the more we give, the happier we are. Jesus said it like this. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. This week, uh, Stacy and I were... uh, Friday, we were Christmas shopping, trying to get all our Christmas shopping done. And uh, David Headley, one of our uh, men from the church, was having a procedure done on his heart. And so we, we broke from our Christmas shopping and went over to the hospital and uh, went in there and uh, visited with he and his wife, met his daughter, prayed with them. Some of, some of you from their life group came over and prayed with them. It made them feel so incredible. And we were walking out the doorways of the hospital, and I looked at Stacy and I said, Have you noticed an atmosphere difference? You're at the mall, and you're at the store, and you're shopping and checking out in these lines, and and there is an atmosphere of get and consumerism this, and you walk in this little surgical prep room and stand beside a man's bed who loves God, and you hold hands and pray, and you weep together, and you celebrate Christ's birth. I'm telling you, there's an absolute total difference. That's what the kingdom of God's about. It's not about how much more we can get. Ask yourself how many of your dreams are about you and how many of your dreams are about other people. How much better would other people's lives have to get for your dreams to be fulfilled? Think about that. The question is, who's the king of your life? Here's the other two and we'll move through them a little quicker. Frankincense. The the wise men brought gold, their treasure, they brought frankincense. 
This shows that Jesus is our priest. See, frankincense is a form of, kind of like a form of prayer. See if I can work one of these. I got one that doesn't work. I'm not going to ask who has a lighter. All right. That wouldn't work out real well, would it? Hey, why do you got that? All right. Frankincense. Frankincense is a form of incense used by the priest in the temple. It's part of worship. Incense is like prayer. It's a sweet-smelling aroma that, it, that ascends from us to God. Incense was used by the priest when he would mediate between God and man. Hebrews says that Jesus is a better high priest than we've ever had on earth. He's a, he's a great high priest, the great high priest. And these wise men bring their gifts to the king and the great high priest. And you know what the the priests did? They spent time with God. They would go into the holy place and sometimes even to the holy of holies and they would meet God. And the question I asked you earlier is, who are you pursuing? How's your prayer life? How much much time do you spend with God? Our time with him is like a sweet-smelling aroma to him. See, Jesus didn't die so we could just run ourselves frantic, uh, uh, overloaded with things to do, drop dead of exhaustion one day and go to heaven. Jesus died so we could have a relationship with him. Is your life including the kind of prayer that would lift a sweet-smelling aroma to God? What are you pursuing? And here's the third one. This is the most unusual. And that's what this represents, myrrh. Myrrh. Myrrh is like an embalming fluid for the dead. Myrrh shows... That Jesus is our sacrifice. It's a foreshadowing of the cross. Our king and our priest came to die for our sins. Jesus' name literally means Savior. When he was being crucified, the soldiers took a stick with a sponge on it and they tried to jam it in Jesus' mouth. And one of the things that was on that sponge was myrrh. The second time in Jesus' life he was offered Myrrh, the first time when he was a baby by a wise man, the next time as a grown man on the cross, giving his life up for us. See, Jesus dies on the cross in our place. When Jesus was prepared for burial, you know what John 19 says was used in his preparation? Myrrh. Think about it for a minute. It's an embalming fluid. So there Jesus was in a cold, dark tomb. Three days later, he came to life, and when he inhaled oxygen for the first time in three days, you know what he must have smelled? Myrrh. It was the sweet smell of victory over sin and death, and as Jesus is walking back into town with resurrection life flowing through his veins, every step he takes, do you know what it smells like in the wrappings he's wearing? It smells like myrrh. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. So the question I have for you this morning then is, what have you sacrificed for Jesus? Has has following Jesus cost you anything? Has it strained any relationships? Has it inconvenienced you? Has it cost you a promotion maybe at work? Has it uh, keeping Jesus first in your life? uh, Have you disappointed someone? What does it cost you? So what does that have to do with family Christmas? Now ask our musicians to come. I'll tell you what it has to do with family Christmas. This is, this is our family. All over this room, in the nursery, in the kids' church, 
life groups are meeting right now. In a few minutes, we'll have another service, and the room will fill again, and that whole room is part of our family. So what does it have to do with our family? This is our time. And it's our generosity, and it's our prayers, and it's our sacrifice that will cause people to be welcomed into Jesus' family. You know, 39 people last weekend prayed to receive Christ at Scrooge. Somebody had to reach out. Somebody had to sacrifice something to, to tell them. It cost somebody something for that to happen. Somebody had to pray, come into agreement with God's work in their life. Somebody had to give in order for the play to happen. Think about it with me for a minute. Generosity and prayer and sacrifice. Boy, that sounds like a plan to change the world, doesn't it? And it also sounds like a plan to change me. Would I engage God that way? What does is, what is your giving tell you about your love for God? What does it tell you about who the king of your life is? What does your prayer and your prayer life tell you about your love for God? What does your sacrifice tell you about your love for God. What does it tell you? What do these things say to you and me about Jesus' family? If Jesus is most important, then the people who love Jesus are very important. And so this morning, I, I want to... I prayed throughout this weekend, how, how would we... What do you do now, what do you do with this? What do you, how do you, how do you understand what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life? Here's what I want us to do. Just as the worship team's just playing softly, I want to give you just a minute, just one minute, and I just want you to sit in silence with your eyes closed and your spiritual ears open. Just want you to ask God, God, what are you saying to me? I can't change your heart. I can't change my own heart. And I can't, I've done everything I know to do, not to in any way put guilt on you of any kind. But I think at Christmas, how incredible it would be to come in contact the baby who was born 2,000 years ago and let him speak to our heart fresh about what he wants in his relationship with us and so if you would just a minute if you need to go I'll let you go but if you would would you would you in, in just silence would you just sit with your eyes closed would you pray would you listen would you hear would you welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in your life 